Welcome to this week's episode of Worship This Week. I'm John Strickland, and this podcast exists to equip and prepare worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today we're finishing up a three-part series answering the question, what is worship? And then we'll preview our upcoming worship service at Tabernacle for this coming Sunday, January 24th. We've explored some important language considerations, both in the way that we use the modern word worship, as well as the words the biblical authors use to describe worship. And then we look to some sound authors and theologians who have tackled this question to see how they defined worship. So today we're going to synthesize all of that into some categories that should help us build a framework for understanding worship biblically. And the two big categories that we're going to consider are revelation and response. God reveals himself to us, and then we respond to God's revelation. So that pattern of revelation and response repeats itself, and it becomes a cycle of dialogue between God and his people. And when we look at the the whole Bible, we see that that's the basis for what worship is. It's our interaction with God as he reveals things to us, and then we respond to him appropriately. So the first thing to note about this cycle, this category of revelation, is that God is the initiator of worship. God prompts us. He seeks us out. Uh, He's not waiting around for us to have the idea uh, of acknowledging him on our own, to have the great idea of coming before him with worship. He pursues us. John chapter 4 says that the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. So we have to note, first of all, that worship is God's idea. It begins with God. He initiates worship. We would not know to respond unless God revealed himself and then prompted us and commanded us uh, to come back to him in response in worship. But God reveals himself to us in two ways. Uh, Who he is and then what he says and does. He reveals himself uh, as, as who he is and then he reveals himself by what he says and what he does. Uh, who God is includes things like his attributes, his nature. Uh, and so we see things like his nature as the Trinity, as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the, the, the presence of Trinitarian language and acknowledging all three, uh, all three persons of the Trinity is an important aspect when we're thinking about how we worship uh, God's greatness, his worth, his glory and value. We talked about those things before. Uh, his holiness and his perfection, uh, and then his love, his mercy, his goodness, all of these things and more uh, are what are what God is, who God is, how, how he reveals himself to us by telling us what he's like. Uh, and so those things form a basis for then for us to respond to who God is. Then we also respond to what God says and does. He reveals himself by what he says and what he does, his word, his will, and his works. Uh, he is a creator. He creates He rules, he commands, he saves, he redeems. These are all the things that God does. And then, of course, we have the totality of the scriptures, what God has said, uh, perfect and complete revelation of of God's word to us. So all of these things form the basis by which then we react and respond. Uh, We see who God is. We see what he says and does, all of which comes from God himself. And then we respond to that revelation And then likewise, our response has two main forms. Uh, First, we have an inward response. 
uh, inward responses of adoration. So we see God's greatness and worth, his holiness and perfection. We adore him for that. Uh, just acknowledgement and recognition um, that we submit to God, that we uh, acknowledge that he's greater than us, that we put ourselves in the proper place, in the proper posture before God. Praise, gratitude, and trust. Um, these inward affections that, uh, that then motivate us uh, to an outward response. We have an inward response, an outward response. Um, so if our inward responses are mainly affections in our heart of, of things that we believe and feel, uh, and then we respond inwardly, then the outward responses are then more uh, behaviors and actions, um, the response of our wills that we obey and repent of our sin, that we submit to God, that we participate in, in corporate worship. All of these things are outward responses, physical actions uh, of the will. And so we, we see this framework then of revelation of God revealing himself to us and then our response. And, and then uh, we respond inwardly with our hearts. We respond outwardly with our behavior, our will. Uh, we respond to who God is and what God says and does. And then overlaid over all of that, we can also see this important progression uh, kind of fit into that structure of this mind, heart, and will progression, which is an important thing that was noted by several of the definitions that we read last week. Um, but this idea that our mind, that worship begins with our mind because we have to know God. We have to understand who God is. We have to understand his revelation. So we we, we perceive his revelation by by understanding it and seeing it and reading it or hearing it with our minds and our, our ears. Uh, and we have to understand it first. And so it starts with the knowledge of God, our minds. So the revelation of God, he reveals himself to us. And the first step of us receiving that revelation is that we understand, we know. So it begins with the mind. And then that, that first inward response is that, that that knowledge in our mind then affects our hearts. It moves our affections for God and toward God. And so our, our minds then change our hearts to then be moved to those inward responses and then those inward responses are what motivate our inside-out response of our wills of obedience to God. So our mind, our knowledge of God, moves our hearts in affections for God, adoration, praise, gratitude, trust. And then those things, those affections in our hearts then motivate our outward responses of our will of obedience and repentance. It's a very important that we understand biblically that those things go in that order. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just will ourselves to be obedient and repent unless those inward affections are there from our hearts. And we can't have those inward affections uh, manufactured in our hearts. They have to come from a true knowledge of God and a true experience with the revelation of God, mainly through reading the Bible. And so this is a, becomes a very important part of not only of just worship, um, but of all of discipleship and all of Christian life as uh, we look at uh, how worship is really just the same thing as discipleship. It really is just living a life that's pleasing to God, living a life that glorifies God. Um, that is our spiritual worship as Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says. Well, I hope this has been a fruitful conversation the past three weeks. Uh, we'll continue obviously to discuss uh, worship and various aspects of that. Uh, but this if anybody ever asked you, or if you have a conversation and, and try to uh, determine, you know, what is worship? What what exactly? How do we nail down this idea of worship? 
uh, I hope that you'll remember uh, to go back to that framework of revelation and response. Uh, it's, it's very simply, we can boil it down to God reveals himself to us, we respond to him, uh, and that is the essence of worship in the Bible. Let's look forward now to January 24th as we gather for worship at Tabernacle. Uh, we'll begin our service at the call to worship in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And this is just a wonderful reminder to us of God's grace and his worthiness to be praised uh, because of his work in saving us. Specifically, we acknowledge uh, that the gospel has come to us, that the, God's grace has reached us, and therefore... Um, the God who is so gracious and, and able uh, to save us is worthy to be praised. And so from there we respond by singing, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. Uh, this hymn is based on several psalms, uh, mainly Psalm 103 verses 1 through 6. We, we can uh, see snippets and little allusions throughout uh, the hymn from those verses and then uh, some from Psalm 150. It was published in 1680. Uh, by Joachim Neander, uh, and later translated into English by Catherine Winkworth in 1863. Uh, a key line from this uh, hymn that I want us to, to focus on and maybe have in our minds before we sing it on Sunday is from verse 3. It says, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if, his, if with his love he befriend thee. I love that line because it just reminds me of, of how we need worship week after week. Even though we seemingly do very similar things. We sing songs. We hear the word preached. It's very repetitive. It's very. Um, it can become monotonous to us if we're not uh, if we're not mindful of the purpose uh, behind this. Um, but the purpose is to do exactly what that line said: ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Every week we come, we need to uh, have a fresh mindset, ready to uh, receive once again from the Word, from God's revelation that. Um, uh, that he can do far beyond what we uh, imagine, uh, that his ways are not our ways, that he is far above uh, our perception uh, and our reasoning, and that um, we can uh, see afresh every week uh, what God is capable of, why he's worthy of praise. Um, following that, we'll continue to sing our trust in God and our dependence on the gospel. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. And righteousness, the Solid Rock, written by Edward Mote in 1834, uh, and the tune was written by William Bradbury. And um, this doesn't always happen with some of the older hymns. A lot of times, the uh, the author of the text and the author of the tune uh, were different people at different times. They weren't necessarily written to go together, but then later they were fit together. Um, but this particular tune was written specifically for this text. So William Bradbury wrote this tune for Moat's hymn to, to, to sing the hymn. And uh, a key line that I want us to think about in this one is uh, the, from the very first verse. It says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And that word frame becomes kind of strange because it's not how we typically use that word. Um, but I think the sense in which he's using it is how we would typically use it in a larger phrase namely the frame of mind. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the sweetest frame of mind, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Um, this, is a, this is a reminder to us that uh, the second verse and the third verse go on to, to really talk about difficult times and trusting God in suffering, which is not as foreign a concept to us. But I think what we often need reminding 
is that we dare not trust in the sweetest frame. So when things are going well, uh, when I have a, a, a good feeling, a good emotional state, uh, I, I dare not trust that. I dare not put my trust in, in things going well or, or, or me having a good feeling about how my life is going or how things seem to me. Um, but still in that time, lean on Jesus' name. So I'm leaning on Jesus' name just as much uh, when I have the sweetest frame of mind or when darkness veils his lovely face. Uh, then we'll have a prayer, and following the prayer, as we prepare to uh, hear the word, we sing, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Again, another older hymn, uh, uh, recently revived with a new tune, so written by Anne Steele in 1760, revived just in the last several years with a new tune by Matt Merker. Um, again, a wonderful hymn of, of just desperation and trust and submission uh, to God in difficult times, uh, a wonderful prayer. Uh, a key line from this one. Uh, it says, and still my soul would cleave to thee, uh, though prostrate in the dust. Uh, so even at the, even at my lowest point, I'm laying in the dirt, so humbled or so afflicted that I'm that I'm literally laying down in the ground. Uh, it says, my soul, even in that moment, my soul would cleave to to thee. My soul would would cling to the Lord, um, because I have nowhere else to turn. I have nowhere else to trust. Um, and I know that even in that lowest time, God is faithful um, and he has a purpose. Uh, it's a wonderful line to remind us of that truth. We'll hear our sermon. And then as a response to the hearing a sermon preached, we're going to sing Like a River Glorious by Francis Ridley Havergal, written in 1874. Uh, the tune, again, uh, another case of the tune being composed specifically for this text by uh, a man named James Mountain, who was an evangelist in Britain in the 1870s and 80s. And the key line that I really like uh, from this hymn, uh, she says, perfect, yet it floweth fuller every day. Um, meaning the peace of God is perfect, yet uh, as we experience it, it seems as though it gets fuller every day. So uh, just that wonderful kind of um, oxymoron or, 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 di- or dichotomy of how can God's perfect peace um Yet somehow to us, it seems as though it it gets more and more full um, every day. Um, that's just a reminder of how um, you know how how finite we are in experiencing the fullness and and the and the glory of God, um, uh, and and what a wonderful experience that is when uh, when we embrace the peace of God and understand um, that His perfect peace um, for us is going to be a fountain that floweth every day. Um, we'll close with uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, which again is just a biblical, uh, a reminder of the biblical foundation of what we just sang, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, when we keep our minds focused on him, uh, the hymn says, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Uh, when we keep our focus on God uh, and, and keep our, our intentions and our wills and our, uh, our attitudes stayed on the Lord, Um, then we'll experience the peace of God. That's what the promise of Philippians 4 says. Thank you so much for joining us. I pray that uh, we will all be worshipers this week, and I hope to see you in worship on Sunday morning.